Well, hey, welcome back to Beautiful and Believable. Drew Dotson here. Excited to do uh, episode number six of my short form series on religionless Christianity. Uh, my uh, wife was listening in. That's always a, a, a nice endorsement when your wife actually listens to something you've yacked about. And she reminded me that a few episodes ago, back in number three, I think, I mentioned the five major themes that I've gleaned that I think are very helpful from Bonhoeffer's musings about religionless Christianity as he was in that Nazi prison camp. And then I never talked about those five. I just mentioned that I boiled it down to five that I find provocative, make me think, find them helpful. So I thought today I'll go to those five themes uh, the five tenets is another way to talk about them of his proposal about religionless Christianity. I'll only unpack them just a bit, enough to give us a little bit of understanding, and then we're going to want to talk about these as we go forward, along with several other things. Uh, thanks for uh, listening in to this this series. This is much on my mind nowadays. And some time ago, I went on a kind of a massive reading program read several uh, published Ph.D. dissertations about Bonhoeffer. There are some uh, remarkable Bonhoeffer scholars out there. I'm not one of them, but I did glean from their summaries and from their take on his uh, idea of religionless Christianity five things that stood out to me. Maybe are the five main points, the five things you and I should be considering. Uh, like I talked about and yacked about in our last episode, he did believe the world had come of age. That it had come out of its childishness and its and was coming out of its adolescence. That the layers of religion that we've talked about were part of that childishness. And that Europe in particular at that time was shedding uh, the old clothes, so to speak. And he was wondering if anybody would have the courage to announce that the emperor had no clothes. Uh, and he would talk some about Nietzsche or Nietzsche uh, pronouncing God is dead. And he would have agreed that the Christendom God of Europe was dead or dying. So the world coming of age, uh, and yet people did have a leftover identity, much like we do here in America. But he made an interesting comment that applies to us that uh, actually very few people in Europe at the time really depended on God to make sense, everyday sense, of their lives. And I find this largely true. When you get outside of the conservative evangelical bubble and people who think that doing Christianity means going to Bible studies nonstop, or people who think that going to worship services on Sunday is doing Christianity, you get outside that bubble, uh, there are people who may have some kind of belief in a God or God or a higher power or the universe, capital U, they really don't depend on that to make everyday sense of their lives. And that's what Bonhoeffer was noticing in Europe all those decades ago. And so he began, of course, as we've been saying, he began to articulate these things. And let me just name five of the core tenets uh, five of the main ideas of religionless Christianity. We'll name them uh, today, and I'll watch my time so I don't go too long. And I'll summarize these with uh, five words, and then I've got a little short two or three or four sentence paragraph that I'll talk about with us. The first of these is love. 
Love is my one-word summary of this first of these five. Uh, And by that, he means that the powerful Zeus-like God of religion is gone. The powerful God of religion is gone. He called him a powerful but illusory God of religion. Bonhoeffer would say he never actually existed. We made him up like we made up Zeus. Because what Jesus reveals is the compassionate God of the Gospels, uh, as revealed in Jesus. And he would say this is the very heart of religionless Christianity. He took the incarnation so seriously. He was such a good theological thinker. Uh, He simply made the case, if we Christians really believe that Jesus reveals God, what the Apostle Paul said, Jesus is the very image, the very icon in Greek of God. That other way to say it is if you want to know what God looks like, you look at Jesus of Nazareth. Another way to think about it is if the God in your imagination looks anything like anyone except Jesus of Nazareth, you're making up a God that doesn't exist, is what Bonhoeffer would say. Uh, this, this is tough for us because most of us walk around with a Zeus-like guy on a throne over a flat earth somewhere beyond the dome of the sky. Now, when we go into our science mode, we, do, we know that there's not a place in a throne up there. We, but when we're in our religion mode, we kind of still are flat earthers with a dome sky with a guy with a long gray beard and lightning bolts in a throne above the sky. And Bonhoeffer was taking the incarnation so seriously, he said, that's illusory, that's imaginative, that's made up. Jesus reveals the reality. And the reality is God is with us in our human condition. Uh, He is a slob like one of us, if he's like Jesus. And he's compassionate. And he's not throwing lightning bolts. He's not snapping his fingers and fixing problems. In a very real sense, he is not in control. He is sovereign. He is God. But he is not in control in the same way Jesus was not and willingly suffered and willingly took on our human condition, our guilt and our shame, our weakness, and our love and our love of one another and our love of table and our love of relationship and friendship. Jesus took all that on. So he would say that Christ helps us not by virtue of his omnipotence, but rather by virtue of his weakness and suffering. And all I'd say for your consideration is this is not new. Bonhoeffer was not innovating. We'll say things like this in our Bible studies, in our sermons, and then we'll immediately imagine God as a pissed off Zeus. And we're hoping he'll either throw lightning bolts down on our enemies, all those liberals, all those people that don't believe like we believe, Or we're hoping he'll simply snap his fingers and finally do something about this issue I've got or the suffering I'm in. So we'll talk more about this later, but the first tenet is love in that God is love. He is not Zeus. And Jesus shows us what God's actually like. The second one is the word responsibility. 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 The way Bonhoeffer would say it is that uh, this God that Jesus reveals expects us to manage our life without God. And by that he means we need to quit waiting on Zeus to sprinkle fairy dust or snap his fingers or send lightning bolts and fix it. 
in evangelical language, we need to quit waiting around for the second coming, and we need to get on with taking responsibility for the world. <clears throat> Excuse me. He says we need to take responsible risks for the sake of the world. Maybe even risk being wrong. Maybe even risk sinning. He felt like he was risking sinning to participate in the plot to kill Hitler. But he felt like that we Christians have no choice if we'll take responsibility for the world. At some point, your faith will require you to take responsibility and gird up your loins, as the scriptures say, and do something even at risk of getting it wrong, even at risk of sin, because the God as revealed in Jesus has grace for our sins and our mistakes if we are taking responsibility for the world he loves. So responsibility, living a new life for others, not for the afterlife. Living this new life in Christ for others, not for ourselves and our reward and our throne and our cushy cloud in heaven. So taking responsibility and believing that we have to live what he would call a worldly faith for others, taking responsibility, believing that Christ is present in the world. If, if Christ really is the Christ of Ephesians 1 and Colossians 1, the cosmic Christ, uh, if he really is the logos of John chapter 1, then he is present to every human being. And we need to take responsibility for every human being, believing that. Believing that Jesus meant it when he said we take responsibility for the world, that we are actually ministering to him. Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats parable. Okay, so love. God looks like Jesus, not Zeus. Responsibility, a worldly faith. Getting on with it. Risking. Loving this world. Third word is freedom. Freedom, which he believes goes hand in hand with responsibility. But our, here's his take on freedom. Our freedom is a freedom, not a, our own autonomy that we can make up stuff as, that we want to be about and that we have the freedom just to be uh, lazy slugs or just to head to the beach and pina coladas. He talked about freedom in the sense of a freedom, a freedom for others and their flourishing, that we're free to do something about what we see in this world. Uh, all the relationships that Christ wants us only to become the human beings that we really are. He didn't come, I've said this before, he didn't come to make us spiritual, he came to make us human. Reconnected to the God that he revealed, this loving, suffering, present God. Uh, and, and living in the freedom of that, that we can be free in our lives, believing that God is with us, that human beings are made in the image of God, and that we walk in freedom for the sake of others, and that that is the path of life. That is the Jesus way. That is the narrow way. Uh, he wants us to know ourselves to be truly a part of all of humanity, the whole of humanity, which was born by him in his incarnation and was carried with himself to the cross and was then resurrected on the third day and ascended to the right hand of the Father, to put it in ancient Jewish biblical language. In other words, Jesus took all that there is about humanity and carried it all through his life. And we can walk in the freedom of knowing that and that we're called to be more human and not float three feet off the ground as hyper-spiritual people or covey up in our exclusive huddles. He would argue that we should be so inclusive 
so inclusive of other human beings because Jesus bore all of humanity in his incarnation and in his crucifixion and in his resurrection. It's a, we say these things, but we say them in our religious silo, then we go right back to being exclusive. I, th- I say we are religiously constipated. We just are so bound up and knotted up in our religion. We aren't free, and we, look, we don't look free to the world. They don't look at us evangelical and us Christians and say, man, look at how free those people are. Look at how free-spirited they are. Uh, it's why we don't produce enough artists. We're, we're too bound up. And Bonhoeffer would say, we need to be free humans and trust that Jesus really did redeem and is redeeming the human condition. He would say it, and this will, this will make some of us nervous, but he'd say it this way, in Christ, all humanity is reconciled to God. There are no exceptions, though to him it is a mystery and a tragedy that they have not all yet accepted their reconciliation. And I would even include some of us who think that we're born again, have not yet accepted our acceptance in Christ. That's another topic for another day. Okay, so love, responsibility, freedom, and the fourth big idea is encounter. Encounter. Christian community is not a self-preserving institution. It's only, and he's now talking corporately, not so much individually, corporately. It's only true to Christ when the church, quote-unquote, the capital C church, or any small C church, exists for the sake of others and is willing to encounter the world. If it becomes a self-preserving institution. We are betraying Christ, betraying his way, and betraying his teaching. It is only true to Christ when it exists for the sake of others, suffering for the world in risk, moral ambiguity, like joining a plot to assassinate Hitler, in sacrifice, being willing to have the short end of the stick when we help people or when we deal with people, and forgiveness. We are the people. We don't live by being right. We don't live by getting it right. If we believe anything about the New Testament, we're the people who live by forgiveness. We forgive others. We seek forgiveness. We forgive ourselves. We count on forgiveness in the grace and the truth of Christ. His truth shows us our need for forgiveness or others, and then we count on his grace in forgiveness and with others and with ourselves. Uh, how else would he say? The, the church, he would, he would say this. He said, we ought to be wide open to encounter with the world as it is, in all that it is. Because he says the church is nothing other than that portion of humanity where Christ is actually taking form. Put it in biblical language, we are, 2 Corinthians 3, uh, becoming, slowly by slowly, we are becoming the very likeness of Christ. As you know, that's what Christian meant in the initial, it was a, it was a term of mockery, and it was a mockery to say, they talked about the uh, Jesus followers in Antioch and said, look at all the little messiahs, look at all the little Christs in Greek, look at all the little uh, messiahs. 
And that's what Christian, it was a mockery. And yet it's also the, the core truth of what Christianity is. It is those people who have devoted themselves to following Jesus, listening to Jesus, and in some way, shape, form, or fashion by his spirit, slowly by slowly becoming more like him, whether male or female, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile. So, encounter with the world because we are humanity, and we're part of humanity, and we need to suffer for the sake of the world. He would even say that Christian community, this is where I'll end, this goes to my burn it down comment some a couple of months ago, even Bonhoeffer would say the Christian community must, and he's talking about the European church at the time, sponsored by state taxes and that sort of thing, the Christian community must give up its wealth its power, and its pride. Let me say that again, and you think about your tribe of Christianity, your denomination. You think about Christianity in America broadly, and then very specifically about your local church. Bonhoeffer would say to encounter the world and to represent Christ truly and to become more like Christ, the Christian church must give up, must give up its wealth, power, and pride. Okay, that's grist for the mill for another day. And then the last word. So we've talked about love, responsibility, freedom, encounter. Simply would use the word prayer here. Because Bonhoeffer doesn't run away from the idea of prayer, whether private or corporate prayer, which is another way to think about what we usually call worship. The reason I stay away from worship most of the time is we immediately think of a building, Sunday morning, a platform, microphones, sound and light show, and maybe even a fog machine if necessary for what we're doing that morning. That is not what uh, Bonhoeffer had in mind. He had in mind what our Anglican friends would call common prayer or corporate prayer. And then he had in mind private prayer. So prayer, uh, addressing and experiencing the transcendent. God, small g, God, capital G, Jesus, his spirit, uh, people think about that in so many different ways, but addressing and c- making contact with, uh, he would he actually used a, a weird phrase. He called this the arcane discipline. What the heck does that mean? It simply means, arcane is simply the idea that we followers of Jesus do practice prayer, both privately and corporately. It's arcane in the sense that he said, this needs to be just for us. If he was alive today, he would be, Mortified and more than mortified, I think he would be rolling his eyes at the fact that we televise our worship services or that we produce our worship services and put them out there, whether it's on Facebook, YouTube, at our own website. He would say, this is ridiculous in a world come of age. This is ridiculous in a time that Christendom is dead. So all this does is further harden the world against Jesus. And I'd have to agree with him. He would say, "This kind of our worship is for us. Our prayer is for us. That's why I called it arcane. And we do benefit from being together. We do benefit from our creeds that kind of keep us anchored uh, in 20 centuries of thinking. Uh, we are anchored by our sacraments and taking the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, the Mass, table. We are anchored at baptism, which tells us that we're crossing the Rubicon and we really are now a Jesus person and we really are committing our life to Jesus as being our Lord. Baptism basically says Jesus really is the boss of me. And he said all those things are still important, but he said for crying out loud, he said 
quit expecting the world to come around on Sunday morning and enjoy that stuff. And he was saying this 70 years ago when all they had was radio. He was saying this is this is an arcane discipline for us. And so what, how would he put it? He said, those things benefit us, but now they should be hidden. The Christian cause will be a quiet and hidden one. Supported by, quote, people who pray and do justice and wait for God's time. This is very similar to what I believe the message of the little letter of Titus is. To when we're gathered together to plot and plan, strategize on how we're going to meet the urgent needs of our community. And that's our only public face. That's all it needs to be. Uh, if, if I was king, and you should be glad I'm not, I would immediately end the broadcast of any Christian worship service anywhere at any time around the world. So you should be glad I'm not king. Uh, and he, well, here's what he says happens when we pray. If we will, when we have, when we partake as followers of Jesus in this arcane discipline, this this hidden life of prayer, our public life is doing justice. Our hidden life is prayer. And when we break bread together, when we actually celebrate Eucharist, communion together, when we baptize one another into the community, into the commitment that Jesus is Lord. He says, what happens? It doesn't make us an, an exclusive club. It's hidden, but not exclusive. He, say, he would put it this way. What the, what the prayer does and what our creeds do and what these sacraments do, if we understand them correctly in this arcane discipline, they take us by the shoulders, turn us around from our ingrown inner vision, and turn us around to face the world that we're called to encounter, uh, that we're called to live in freedom among, that we're called to take responsibility for, that we're called to love the way Jesus loved it in his suffering and in his presence and in his weakness. So there's the five. They knit together. Uh, I know that they don't... At least my experience has been they don't immediately all make sense to me. They're so different than how we usually talk about these things. But I'm hoping that that will help you today just to get the first pass at the five, I think, core beliefs that we need to consider when we think about a religionless interpretation of Jesus and our New Testament teaching. So I hope that's provocative for you. I hope that'll give you a little food for thought. We'll unpack those as we go. And let me see. I want to do something here and ask you as we, uh, as we sign off today. Uh, it would help us a lot if uh, you wouldn't mind giving us a review of some sort, on uh, whether it's on Spotify or Apple, wherever you get your podcast. It, it's not so much that we're fishing for compliments. It's that your review will, will help us with our listens. It will help us get more exposure for other listeners. Uh, those reviews are important for people typing in Beautiful and Believable, how quickly it pops up and if it pops up and that sort of thing. So if you don't mind, uh, give us just a short review on, on wherever you get your uh, podcast. That would just help us uh, as we try to grow our listenership. We appreciate you. We appreciate you listening. Uh, much love. Thank you very much. Mm -hmm.